Good evening and welcome to the Park End Resurrection Service. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Or is he? Is it like believing the tooth fairy of which there is no evidence and Park End members are all balloon heads who bury their heads in the sand and don't face real life because there's no evidence for the resurrection? Um, children, would you believe that there is actually a lunatic fringe of society that today are not worshipping Jesus, the risen Lord? So let's try and help them out. And I don't usually do this, but I'm going to divide this into two parts. The first is just going to get us thinking about perhaps, is there actually some credible evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and tackling some sort of myths against it? And then the second one, we're going to just worship and realize why it matters. So um, the Internet is a sewage pipe of misinformation, and it slightly irritates people like me that have given over a decade of um, their lives to studying actual textbooks of historians and philosophers and theologians and people who know what they're talking about. And they have to go through a somewhat rigorous editorial process to have anything published into books whereas these days you get some sort of you know unwashed teenager with an axe to grind because he met a christian in school once that didn't fancy him back or something so he blogs just absolute trash against christianity and because it's the day of the internet he can just upload it and there it is and people can then refer to him and quote him in their own articles and so the sewage sort of continues. So let's start with a bit of an Easter rant. Um, church this morning is not believing a placebo. Faith is not blind. The scriptures say these things are written that you may believe. The scriptures say prove all things, test the scriptures. Um, so I'm going to flag up a few slides now and headings of um, points I just want to convey in this first part. So the first one is, is the resurrection account actually stolen from other sort of religious texts like stories and, or fables about, say, Dionysus or Osiris? Um, no. So Dionysus, I think, is a fictional god in um, ancient Greek literature i think he's the god of the grape harvest he dies in the story he's reborn and does some things with wine and people are like ah the christians have stolen that message so bear him in mind cyrus egyptian god 1800 years before christ um did we steal the story from him so basically uh, if you look at modern sort of historians both comparisons of those two to jesus have been massively debunked dionysus wasn't raised from the dead and if you're going to go down grape and wine stories that's not greek that is classic old testament jewish um, theology there osiris lives in the underworld his body is scattered there's no resurrection when his wife finds him in a casket i think she tears him to shreds tears his body to shreds and by the way cults of sort of dying and rising fables had no place in first century palestine they were not prepared for a god that 
resurrects from the dead. So another interesting thing we hear at the moment around the free speech world of bloggers is uh, we only believe the Easter story because we're Westerners and it's been drilled into us in school and there's no truth to it, it's just what we've been taught. And if we were born in Pakistan or Saudi Arabia or um, places like that, we would believe in another God. That is called in sort of philosophical um, areas of debate and writings as the genetic fallacy. The error is thinking that whether or not where you're born and what you're taught growing up bears any impact on the thing that's being taught you. You can hear one story in one country and one somewhere else. Just because you hear something and are told it growing up bears no impact on the truth of that story. Truth is truth and must be assessed and analysed whether it's popular in one side of the world or not. The next one's an interesting one and I actually dug my notes out for this one because um, it's a quote from the Christian theologian Bill Craig, William Lane Craig. And um, it's about probability because he's always told, oh, the resurrection is an extraordinary event. And for an extraordinary event, you need extraordinary evidence. And there just isn't any. So he actually says that's demonstrably false, that string of argument, just on the level of probability and how probability works. For example, winning the national lottery is like millions to one, the probability of it. Where would the evidence of the winning ticket come from? The answer to that is the evening news. Well, you're having your cereal and your porridge. But if you go in on this logic that extraordinary events or improbable events need extraordinary amounts of evidences, you actually end up not being able to prove any improbable events. So, but with the evening news, the evidence of the reliability of the evening news would be swamped by the evidence of the improbability of the event that was recording that someone won the lottery. So it leads to scepticism on not just supernatural events, but all events which are improbable. But probability theorists, which teenage bloggers don't often read and quote, say things should be assessed a different way instead. Namely, like this. What are the chances of the evening news reading those numbers as winning numbers if the event hadn't happened? The answer is enormously improbable. Now, I'm putting pictures up all over the place here because I want to reach this sort of visual younger generation that think they know it all. But with something like the resurrection of the dead, what's the probability that the scriptures were written, people seeing it, lives being changed, if the events hadn't happened? The answer is enormously improbable. The intrinsic probability balances it out. So we're not dealing now with primary school level of attacks. We actually have to think about things. Christians have thought things through. Also, it doesn't take extraordinary evidence to prove if someone is alive or dead. Before long, Rita might walk past the door. Oh, she's alive. That was easy. 
So it's equally as easy to prove if someone is alive and then they died and then they're alive again. So in this instance, with the evidence of those, that type of thought process plus the collection of historical books that we have, their accuracy, their history, their eyewitness accounts, the fact that the Lord has overseen it, this story fares pretty well against other improbable events. As for the word of God being reliable, we have multiple independent eyewitness accounts of the tomb being empty. You also have, if you're going to make up a story, I'll tell you what you wouldn't do in first century Palestine, women who were the first ones to find it and they go off and tell people because with all due respect to women, back in the first century uh, Palestine, a woman's testimony meant nothing. And if you're going to go making stories up, you're not going to say a woman saw it first. He was buried. He's alive. The tomb is empty. Over 500 people saw him. And the credibility of those accounts is quite overwhelming. If you want to read 800 pages of something, read N.T. Wright's book. It's over 800 pages long and it looks at the evidence of the resurrection. And he concludes, I mean 800 pages, this isn't a one paragraph blog. He concludes that it is virtually certain, as certain as other historical events like the fall of Jerusalem. Were people hallucinating? The thing with hallucinations are you hallucinate on things you're expecting to see or know about. There was no expectation among these people who converted into believing it. They were not expecting that of God. So the New Testament, which we're looking at today, there are over 5,000 ancient manuscripts that we have today in the original Greek and some 20,000 sources to help us piece it together. Now, compare that with, and I wrote this down, Park End, I put the effort in this week, nine or ten copies of Caesar's Gallic War, which was 58 to 50 BC. Nine or ten compared to the 5,000 and then 20,000 sources. There are nine or ten copies of Caesar's Gallic War. Um, yet, no one questions that Caesar invaded Britain in 55 BC. Yet only 10 copies from 900 years after the event remain. After that, you've got 20 copies of Livy's Roman history, which is 59 BC to AD 17. The closest to the New Testament 20,000 sources is Homer's Iliad, which is just 643. Now, the children like Owen, we know all that. Come on now. Um, duh, of course Jesus is risen. I know, I know. And we'll get to why it's important next. We'll get to the good bit now. Um, so we'll divide this up with a song. Let's get to singing his praises. Um, children, go and grab your pens and paper before this hymn. And what we want from you is good versus evil. What does that look like? Uh, Jesus versus evil, darkness versus light. And make sure you draw the church on the winning sides team. Let's sing the praises of God. Mm -hmm. 
So we are in on this resurrection glorious day. 1 Timothy 3 verse 16. Up it comes. This week the church has been thinking about the ultimate battle of the superpowers between good and evil. So sin, everybody, if you haven't noticed by now, uh, is very powerful. Um, And we are peering in on Good Friday at its power as it collides head on with Jesus. It latches on to Jesus and God the Father has to deal with the power of sin. Good Friday, we remembered, where the Lord took vengeance against the Lord for our sin. Now, here's the important part. If Jesus remains dead, the greatest power in the universe is sin and death. Because that's it. It just just wins. It has the end say on everything. Sin is such a powerful problem. We all have to face up to it, um, either ourselves or we let someone else face up to it for us and deal with it. Um, It's attractive, it's powerful, but it's deadly. It's a bit like the Blackpool, um, what do you call it, lights. You know what they are, whatever lights they're called, famous lights. Bright on one side, attractive. But actually, if you talk to people who live in Blackpool, they'll also mention what happens the other side of those lights when you go and see what's behind it. It's just like kilometers of cables and dirt and rubble. It's really interesting. The one side is shiny and flashy, but some people have come to the point where they know what's on the other side. It's just like that with sin. It is enticing. It does lure us. We keep doing it. It's not even really our actions. It's like who we are at the core. We cannot help but not love the Lord God with all of our heart and love our neighbour as ourselves. We just can't. We're in COVID-19 lockdown. Um, If we were all sinless, it would be quite easy to be stuck with each other for months on end. But actually, it's it's proving at times quite hard. Why? Because we're sinners and we rub each other up the wrong way. Even the most beloved married couples have those moments. I wonder what would happen if our thoughts were projected onto a screen just from the last two weeks of lockdown. All of our thoughts onto a screen, whether they would be good, bad or ugly. We do as humans commit crimes against each other and crimes against God. Crimes against God, of course, are the serious ones. Although actually he's so intimately involved with his people. Sometimes in the Bible you see people um, sinning against people and God says, you're doing that against me. Especially when people sin against the church. God's like, you're doing it against me. But do you remember in um, Psalm 51, David has committed murder and adultery and all sorts of schemes. Um, But he says his crime is against God alone. It's as if there's no one else that he's offended. And he's on the way to grasping how serious this superpower of sin is. Have you ever thought, um, why are crimes against God so serious? Why does God talk about punishing sin, death and decay forever? You ever think about that? Like, how can a finite 
crime warrant an infinite punishment? Like, how serious is this problem of sin? Here's a few answers now that we're thinking about it, just to bring home the importance of what's happened this weekend on the Christian calendar. Um, First of all, the um, penalty of the crime never matches the length of the crime. I could do quite a lot of damage to a human being in 20 seconds. Well, perhaps I couldn't, but a stronger person could do quite a lot of damage to someone in 20 seconds. No one expects the judge, uh, the penalty to match the length of the crime and just have a 20 second sort of jail time. Um, Now, so think about that, but also think about the quality of the person sinned against or the value, if you were. So if Rita came in here, headbutted me just randomly in front of you all now, which would be the delight of some viewers. Um, All right. okay, maybe Rita go to jail for a weekend for that monstrous crime against me. But it's only me. Like, who am I? If Rita walks up to Boris Johnson and headbutts him, don't cheer. Um, pray for Boris, he's not well and needs the wisdom of heaven. Here's a verse about praying for your governments. If you are um, enjoying Boris having the COVID-19 virus. But anyway, if Rita did that against him, uh, considering all of his status and reputation and influence, the judge would consider all of that when handing out the sentence to Rita. And she would get a longer sentence for headbutting Boris than for headbutting me. And I hope she doesn't headbutt either of us. Now, with that in mind, consider the value of the one sinned against when the one sinned against is the infinite, eternal, everlasting, mighty, beautiful, faultless and sinless God. Here's another line of thought. We are actually quite infinite in everything that we do anyway. Um, We have infinite souls Um, But these words now are going out and they've entered the universe forever. And I can't take them back. The universe will never be the same now that I've spoken these sentences. They've gone out. Things have happened. It can never be undone. And it will go on forever. And when we sin, in one sense, it goes on forever. It can never be taken back. It can be forgiven But in one sense, even our sins can last into eternity. They have altered things unchangeably forever. Add to that that the Bible says um, in the place of everlasting banishment and darkness, people hate God so much. They just gnash against him constantly. They carry on sinning forever. Such is their hatred for the living God. And so the punishment has to Keep on going forever because they will not repent. The prince of darkness, Satan himself, will never bow the knee. So when we see we're in this sort of territory, our prayer life and appreciation of God goes slightly above, oh, why didn't he give me a parking space in Lidl today? Or why didn't he take away my cold or something? And those things are, you know, pray about those things. Bible says pray about everything. But this weekend, we are thinking about God stepping out and dealing with an everlasting, mighty, powerful problem of sin. Everlasting for some people. He's dealing with a larger problem 
than the queue at Lidl. This is the territory we're in tonight. Now, here's why I love the church, the Bible, the Lord Jesus and church people. Um, Because when you read the Bible, what it says is for the church, we get convicted of sin, but we never will be condemned. And there's a massive difference between condemnation and conviction. God lets us be convicted so that we, we can become more like Jesus. But if there was no Good Friday and if Jesus hasn't raised from the dead, we need to scratch out all the passages in the Bible where it says grace and peace to you, my church, my saints, because we're all just stuck, condemned by this sentence of decay and death. There is no power, power greater than sin. Just scratch it out. But the word of God this day does not say you are all condemned. It does not say we all now have to face the music for our sins and face it full on. So what became of Jesus? Well, hallelujah, he is risen, he is risen indeed. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. There is someone more powerful than sin, death and decay. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is the text on the screen. Today we celebrate that he is who he says he is. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated, that is, Eddie Coyote, justified, by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world and was taken up into glory. That means when I as a pastor find people that are ill, depressed, guilty, dying, about to be called to give God an account of their lives, I have the greatest calling in the world. And I can sit next to my church family who are in that state and say, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence cometh my help? It's best in the AV. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, He who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. And it's not some psychological placebo because all Christians need crutches to just last five minutes in the day. This is truth. And the truth is this. It takes more than death for us to go to a better place. It takes the death of Jesus in our place. And the church says today he has died and he is risen 
and we are saved and we are at peace and we have eternal life already and the best is yet to come. But here's a question. Why was Jesus declared justified and righteous? The answer is this. At his death, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he became the object of the Father's anger against all of those reasons we talked about with the start, all that sin. So until Jesus was resurrected, you might not have heard it said this way before, but there was a big question mark over him. Because in the Mosaic law, it says those who have sinned must die or those who hang on a tree are cursed. So the world is peering in. Has he sinned or what has become of the sin that was on him? Was he guilty? Has he been punished for his own sin? Is he just like us after all? Is it hopeless? No, because today it says he was raised. And his resurrection life now gains, according to, according to Timothy, a very different verdict from the condemned that he had over him when he died it is now vindicated, justified. He is who he says he is. Now, I would imagine the devil threw a party on Good Friday. But on the third day, I just picture now his minions, the celebration stops as they realized Jesus is back. And I just want to end by three short points about why that matters for the church this weekend. So Jesus was handed over to death for our sins, but he's been raised, according to Romans 4, for our, the church, justification. So the resurrection is our grounds for our justification, that we are, in spite of it all, pronounced vindicated, justified, righteous, restored, redeemed, forgiven. It is the event in the life of Jesus which explains how, with all of our failings and sins as a church, we still are pronounced righteous today. And because he secured it, we don't lose it when we sin, or go a day where we don't pray, or go two weeks where we don't read the Bible because it's bound up in him. He is risen. So let's make this personal with three little points. If you trust in Jesus as the sin-bearing, resurrected, life-giving God-man, then the following things are true of you today. Number one, Jesus cannot ever enter again into death and neither can you. His two verses, Romans 8. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And Ephesians 2. We are raised up together and he made us sit together 
in the heavenly places in Jesus. You're like, oh, and I'm not there. I'm sitting at home in lockdown. Nah, you are already glorified, seated with him. And you get to taste a bit more of that as you seek the Lord God this week. Second, because of the resurrection, we as a church are legally and irrevocably declared as righteous as Jesus. So enjoy your God. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Those who are in Christ are already this day new creations. And we've got a long way to go before we're fully there, as much like Jesus as Jesus himself. But the work is done. It is finished is our starting point as a church. Uh, Glenn Scrivener said, uh, the center of Christianity is not your walk with God. It's Christ's walk with God. And he includes us in that. There's a massive difference to that approach than someone who's always trying to please God just to keep up their status of righteousness. Third, when we are stuck as a church in sin and bad habits and lovelessness, hopelessness, loneliness, anxiety, when we've been a bad witness, when we've stopped reading the word of God and praying, when we've been hypocritical, it is critical to do one thing. Remember that he is risen. Jesus is raised for us and we are raised with him. That keeps me from collapsing under my string of failures. Someone said this, because of the resurrection, even my joylessness is a forgiven joylessness in Jesus. And if we grasp that, we won't want to stay as we are. We'll be like, oh, I've got to read the Bible. No, no. I get to read the Bible. It tells me all about my beloved. And I'll close with this. It's just another Sunday if you're not trusting in Jesus. None of the hopes and privileges that I've just talked about, which is for the church, are for you. So may you consider the privileged status of the worldwide church of Jesus this day and be so jealous and in awe of the gifts that have been given us. You turn from everlasting death to everlasting life and may this be your resurrection morning. We'll close by uploading a video from the Park End Worship Group. The Lord bless you and keep you because he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen.